That Naturopathic Podcast. TNP. Hello there. Hi, and thanks for joining us. I'm Dr. Cara Denisio. And I'm Dr. David Miller, and we hear your frustrations. This show is for you. This show is for you if you're feeling like your current healthcare strategy is not getting to the root cause or the underlying reasons for your health. This show is for you if you've been told that you're fine, but you definitely don't feel very well. This show is for you if you're walking out of your doctor's office with one, two, three, four, or even five medications without any mention of diet, lifestyle, or a long-term game plan. This show is for you if you've got several specialists taking care of you, but no one is really putting it all together. This show is for you if you believe that health should be part of health care. These problems have solutions. We know it. Our patients know it. And we want you to know it. Naturopathic medicine is the solution that you need to know about. All right. Welcome to another episode of That Naturopathic Podcast. I'm Dr. Kara. And I'm Dr. Dave. And uh, today we're joined by Dr. Kim Brett, um, a naturopath. I'm actually out- outnumbered today. We've got two, uh, we've got a gut gangster, and uh, I'm not sure what the female version is, <laughs> uh, but we've got two, two She's gut She's more of an original sure. gangster than me, because Kim's been in practice for what, how long, Kim? Oh, 18 years now. Yeah, yeah she's the she's like the OG. she's the OG gut gangster. Yeah, well, okay. well, I'm totally outnumbered by the gut geeks. Um, <laughs> although as NDs, we uh, we all have uh, uh, placed special importance on the gut, so you're uh, in for hearing some really important information today. So welcome, Kim. Thanks very much for having me. I am very excited because I love, love, love talking about the gut and the microbiota, so the bacteria that live along with us. Um, But it's something that practicing for 18 years, it wasn't the same conversation that was there when I was in school and graduated. And even for the first five, 10 years of practice, it just wasn't as much a thing, which is kind of crazy to think about now. Yeah, what was the landscape like then? It was so much, mainly a germ model. Um, So even though we're naturopaths, it was still very much just a what bacteria causes what disease, and then how do we kill it? Um, Of course, we're naturopaths, so if we didn't have to use antibiotics, that would be fantastic, Um, but we still generally just wanted to kill things. Um, Now, there was a little bit that we understood, so it's not that we didn't talk about probiotics or the idea of good bacteria, but it was more if someone took an antibiotic, we would see that they might get stomach pain or cramping or diarrhea or bloating. So we knew something was going wrong or you get a woman who took an antibiotic and then she would get a vaginal yeast infection. So we knew stuff was happening. So we kind of got a post-it note lecture that said something along the lines of, if you have a patient who takes antibiotics, make sure you give them a probiotic because it's magical unicorn good. Um, We really didn't know what was happening, but we knew that there was, we needed to replace the good for some reason. For sure. I don't think it was much different when we started too. Like uh, that didn't, I don't think that changed much from between that and like 2008, 2009. And it didn't. And it's something that if you look at the studies that were out, so if I do a research paper um, search and I look at the terms gut and microbiota, so again, those bacteria that live along with us, um, in the year that I graduated, there were 13 studies that came out. Last year, there were five thousand-ish. And that's just looking at the gut and the microbiota. There's so many others if we look at other areas of health as well. So it's kind of crazy how much this has increased, Um, but it really seemed to have changed about 10 years ago. Um, I remember uh, I did my undergraduate uh, in the, wow, in the late 90s uh, at the the University of Guelph. And my major was nutrition and nutraceutical science. And uh, I've, I and I remember learning and reading the papers at the time on probiotics, and it was a brand new thing. And I I always look back and wonder, what if I had actually just taken that knowledge and like, gone into probiotics or something at the time where I would be now, but uh, it certainly has accelerated to the point where I don't know how you two keep up with the information. And that's one of the hugest problems is for a lot of us, what we learned in the past is not what we understand now. So it depends. I get a lot of questions from people about why didn't my doctor tell me about this or why didn't my naturopath or dietitian or whoever tell me about this information? 
but really a lot of people haven't learned about this stuff. Even now it's depending on what you're taking and where you're interested, it may not be a large component of what you learn about. Um, so I think we have to cut a lot of people, but healthcare providers slack as well, because there's a lot to keep up with and a lot of changes, but this is a paradigm shift in how we understand health. Um, and even though I am like, crazy interested in this side of things, it's affecting everything. And I think it's something that we can't ignore within health. Okay, so can we, like you're saying, it's a paradigm shift. It's super important. Can you uh, maybe explain why to to our listeners why it's really important we learn a little bit about the microbiome? Yeah, absolutely. So um, around ten years ago, and this is maybe more information that people need to know, but we really didn't know that much about the bacteria about ten years ago. And part of the reason was was because of the way that we studied bacteria. Um, and I don't know, and thank goodness for these people who do this, but there are people who are going to study the bacteria. So in the past, the main way that they would do it is they would culture things. So they would grow the bacteria that they could find from a stool sample or a nasal swab, but that relied on the bacteria being alive. Um, and that meant that it had to be bacteria that could live in oxygen. And then around 10 years ago, they started getting techniques that we could study bacteria, whether they were dead or alive. And they had this holy crap moment um, where they had the realization that we have so many more bacterial cells than we could have ever imagined. And we have a made up number that's around 100 trillion. And of course, this is a made up number because nobody is going to count how many bacteria we have. Um, and we also don't know exactly how many human cells that we have, because that's also a pretty impossible thing to figure out. But basically what it is, is we have about um, equal numbers of bacteria to human cells, or even potentially more bacterial cells to human cells. And that would be an interesting fact um, if it was just you're at a party and talking about how crazy it is, is the idea that we have potentially more bacterial cells than we have human cells, but they do stuff that affect how we function as humans. Um, so they have the ability all the time to be affecting our health. And if we have more of them than we have of ourselves, they can play a massive part in whether we have health or whether we have disease. Um, and this is something that we never, ever thought about before, especially because we have been in this idea that a good germ or a bacteria is a dead germ. Um, right. So we've always been focusing on killing things. And now we're realizing that, oh no, they play this really, really big part in health. Because that historically was another big paradigm shift was the germ theory. Yeah. And so uh, do you find it's difficult, you know, in the next evolution of that to go from, you know, a germ theory to focusing on terrain? I think it's a really, really hard thing when we've been told things by people who are in a position of influence. So whether that is the media or a doctor or a researcher, and they've been all along saying that germs and bacteria are bad. And now we have to flip our mindset on that. That's very hard. Um, growing up, you were given antibiotics for everything. Um, it didn't matter what the infection was. You just toss an antibiotic at it. Um, I feel very fortunate that the pink, disgusting, um, liquid antibiotic was so disgusting to me that I would just throw it up all the time and it really didn't get into me. Um, but we also have that those products that kill 99.9% .9 of germs that are still heavily advertised right now, um, or people walk around with vats full of hand sanitizer. And there are absolutely times when antibiotics are going to be 100% appropriate. Or if your family has gastroenteritis where you have your children who are vomiting um, and having diarrhea for 18 hours, absolutely hygiene is of vital importance, but we also don't need to bubble wrap ourselves. Um, but that's happened because we're afraid of germs a lot of the time. And so it becomes something, there's actually a, a study that I love and I talk about a lot, um, but it's kind of a weird one. There was a, a group of researchers who decided to look at the New York City subway system and figure out how many bacteria they could find. So they set out and they um, started sampling all these bacteria and, and just seeing what, they, what was out there. 
And basically at the end of the study, what they found was there were so many more types of bacteria than they ever could have imagined. So that was kind of the end result on things. Of what they found, there were quite a few that they couldn't identify that they'd never seen before. Um, but the ones that they could identify, the vast majority of them were considered non-pathogenic, meaning that they can't cause an infection in the average person. And then they had some that were potentially pathogenic. And potentially pathogenic is not going to be a problem for the average person who can go out and not get ill. So you're not on immunosuppressant medications. You haven't recently had a transplant. Those are just things that are around us in the world and they don't generally cause us problems. So that's really what they found. But the way that it was advertised or put out in the media um, was the New York City subway system is crawling with germs, mm -hmm. right? Crawling with germs doesn't really say is not going to cause us infections. Um, crawling with germs is kind of like saying, and, the, and most of those are good, is kind of like saying you have a friendly serial killer who lives next door to you. We just don't put germs and goodness together. Um, but it, it better headlines. It makes it scary and it makes it a big deal. Just saying that the New York City subway system has a bunch of good bacteria in it isn't a headline. So we have to make it something big and that's what they did but it was funny because whenever i talk about this um, i always see when i'm talking to an audience whether it's the general public or naturopaths or other healthcare providers if people feel like they have the idea of good bacteria and i always get people nodding and they eat yogurt and they've heard of probiotic supplements that have good bacteria in them um, but last fall i was was talking about this um, to a large company. So there were 300 people that were there and it was on um, insurance and healthcare and things like that. So a well-educated population and they're all nodding that they fully understand about good bacteria and they've all bought into this concept. And then I talk about the fact that they are there are researchers who are sampling in the New York City subway system. And there was an audible gasp in the room and everyone's faces looked like I had said that the researchers were sampling feces with their tongue. Um, it was just a <laughs> horrifying idea that the New York City subway system is gross and it's germy and this is the concept that we have. So getting our heads around this is understandably really, really hard um, because this is what we've been told. I think I think we simple humans sometimes try to oversimplify things, and it's really hard to hold in your mind the idea that um, all bacteria won't be always bad, but it depends on the person and the situation. It gets a little bit complicated, right? Like it's just it's just a little bit complicated, probably, to try and understand that something might not be just good or just bad. Absolutely. And it is the interconnected nature as well. So um, you're right, we can have um, bad bacteria that don't cause a problem in certain individuals, but it's this spiraling effect. We interact with our bacteria and then we send signals to them as well. And we're in this synergistic um, sort of uh, relationship with the bacteria where we provide them with a house and food and then they do stuff for us. So when I talk about good bacteria, all I really mean is that when um, we provide a house and food for the, the good bacteria, overall, they are going to produce and do things that cause us a net benefit. So they do good things for us. And on the other side of it, when we talk about bad ones, when they're provided with food and substrates and things, what they're going to end up doing and making are going to be things that could negatively affect us. But that interconnected relationship is really hard to sort of realize as well, because we think, um, more of it is just as where the bacteria live, that's they can cause a problem like an infection there, whether it but it's much beyond that. I think you have an analogy to the <laughs> Lorax. Is that correct? Yeah, I, which I, I have watched over 20 times, probably with my children, although Dave yeah. has not watched it. So yeah, I don't yeah. know the Lorax. It's you a great movie. Yeah. Do you know what? It's a great movie, but I'm going to date myself even more. It is an amazing book. Um, and yeah. so at first I'm going to say, 
um, 100%. This is my version of paraphrasing the Lorax. Um, the book is a thousand times better and its environmental message is so fantastic. So I highly recommend oh, getting, getting that one. That's awesome. It is amazing. Secondly, um, just so that everyone is staying on track with this, um, throughout my telling of the story of the Lorax, whenever I'm saying the word trees, you want to be thinking if we're relating this to our human body, the trees are like the bacteria in this. Um, so I don't want people to get totally lost with this, although hopefully it's fairly self-explanatory. But anyways, um, this is how I think about the bacteria and how they relate with our, our entire body and how it works. So anyways, um, in the story of the Lorax, there is this guy and he's an inventor um, and he comes up with this invention that he calls a sneed. And to make his invention, he has to chop down the truffle trees because they need the soft, fuzzy top parts of the trees. So um, he starts chopping down the trees. And as he does this, this little guy pops out called the Lorax. Um, and he says, I am the Lorax. I speak for the trees. I speak for the trees for the trees have no tongues. And he lets the inventor guy know that every time he chops down a tree, there's going to be a repercussion in the environment at large. So um, the guy basically says, you know what, thank you. I'm really busy. I'm just starting up a business, but I'll keep your information in mind. And basically he just shoes him on his way and the Lorax leaves. So the guy's invention starts to become more popular. Um, so now he has to bring in his brothers and now a bunch of them are chopping down trees. So the Lorax comes back again and again he warns him that there's going to be repercussions and he's just speaking for the trees because they don't have the ability to speak for themselves. Um, and again, the guy basically just sends him on his way. So the invention gets a lot more popular at this point. And um, now they're starting to see that more people are coming in to chop down the trees. They have to set up industry. Um, so now as a lot of trees are being chopped down, the Lorax comes back again. But now he's not just warning him. He's letting him know that there are actual changes that are happening because the trees and that environment is being changed. So first he lets him know that he has to send away the Barbaloot bears. Um, they don't have a place to live anymore. Their habitat is being destroyed and they also don't have food. So they're starving. Um, so he has to send the bears along on their way. And then he comes back another time because now they've got a factory and it's spewing out pollution and there's smog in the air. Um, and now the Swanee swans can't breathe properly anymore. So he has to send them away as well. And then with the community around there, and again, the factory, there's all these toxins that are being pumped out into the water system, and he has to send away the humming fish. So finally, we get towards the end of the story, and we find out that now the guy has gone to the point that they're clear cutting the trees. And this is kind of like antibiotics, um, but a lot of the environment is being absolutely wiped out at this point. And finally, the Lorax comes back one more time, and he's just mad at this point. And he lets the guy know that not only is it has the potential effect of affecting the entire environment around there, they're actually almost at the point of no return right now. And finally, the inventor guy gets mad himself and he says, you know what, I don't really care. I am just going to keep biggering and biggering and biggering my business. And there is absolutely nothing that you can do about that. And as that's being said, they hear the last truffle tree being chopped down. And basically everything that the Lorax said has come true because the trees are gone. We also see that the animals and the fish and the birds had to be sent away because they can't survive in that environment. And now there's toxins all over the place and the people don't have a job anymore. So they leave and the factory is abandoned. And basically the Lorax just leaves at that point as well. And it's something that obviously that is a horribly bleak ending to the story. And that's not quite the ending of the story. Um, and it's not something that I actually think we're there with our microorganisms. But we're at the warning stages where because of some of the things that we're doing, often unintentionally or unknowingly, we're changing the environment of the bacteria. We're changing the bacteria themselves. And that is really impacting our health in massive, massive ways. I like the story. Great <laughs> story. And I, I now will only see the parallels. That's fantastic. <laughs> 
Could you maybe t- take a couple of those examples of the, you know, creatures and animals that had to be sent away and extract that kind of directly for our listeners, you know, the toxic buildup and, you know, just some of those themes you were talking about for the Lorax and just directly talk about the microbiome? Yeah. So first of all, one of the areas that we're seeing that has changed is that if you compare individuals, and we'll say North America, but generally European higher socioeconomic status countries, we have a loss of diversity and richness of bacteria. So it means we have less numbers and less kinds of bacteria when you compare us to hunter-gatherer societies or um, paleofecal samples. And again, congratulations to the people who find very, very old poo and study it. Um, But we're seeing that, yeah, exactly. Kudos to them. Um, But it is something that overall, we're just losing bacteria. Um, But it's also something that the function is changing as well. So we're shifting towards um, an imbalance, perhaps, in the types of good bacteria that we have. And that means that we're producing more um, negative chemicals. So we're seeing that we don't turn down inflammation very well if you compare us to some other areas in the world. Um, So chronic inflammatory conditions are something that is more common, or we're seeing that our immunomodulation doesn't work as well. Growing up, it was something that um, I didn't know kids who had allergies beyond a little bit of seasonal ragweed. I had never heard of a peanut allergy. Um, This is horribly embarrassing, but one of the most exciting days in my grade school experience was the day that someone had an asthma attack because I had never heard of asthma before. I didn't understand that someone couldn't breathe and I had never seen an inhaler before. Um, And now we're seeing some of these um, things around immunomodulation where our immune system is fighting way too hard. They seem to be much more common and there's a lot of links back to the bacteria, even though they're not the only thing that is involved as much probably as um, I can make it seem sometimes. I do realize that not everything is the microbiome, but yeah, those are some of the changes that we're definitely seeing. Yeah, it's it's. I think it's really important um, that everyone understands uh, that we are kind of like a super organism, right? Like there's, we are like, we think of ourselves as human and it's like, it's us. It's just ourselves versus everyone. But we are kind of like this big walking forest that you talk about basically with the, with the Lorax. And um, yeah, I just think that's really interesting for people. I think people are kind of weirded out by that, by the fact that we are like a super organism and these bugs are actually making like DNA, RNA, and we read that. Like, can, yeah. can you talk maybe a little bit about how, you know, the genes fit into this? Because basically we have the same number of genes as a nematode. And so <laughs> it something doesn't quite add up there, right? Yeah, it's, I find that area is something that, Um, tends to be horribly confusing, quite honestly, um, for people. But, um, and first I'm going to say, when we're talking about the numbers of bacteria, because it is huge and we are a super organism, there is no question about it. Thankfully, our human cells are way, way bigger than the bacterial and other microorganism cells, because otherwise it would be much creepier. Um, (laughs) But we do look like our super cute selves, which is great. Um, But they code for things that change, again, they change how we function. Um, And that is something that is getting messed up. But the number of genes is what, and I can never remember the number correctly, but a thousand times more than we have. Yeah, I think it's a hundred to a thousand, but I'm, yeah. I'm not sure of the exact. Yeah, they're really huge numbers, and that the thing about that is that's completely variable. Our own genome is fairly static. Um, now it's something that we can turn our genes on and off, but our DNA is our DNA. Um, whereas whatever we have from our bacteria, that is something that. Um, I kind of think about it in the fact that we want to have a good relationship with our bacteria. We want to do things that are going to promote good bacteria because their influence is absolutely changeable. Um, So whatever we're experiencing from them can change. And the easiest um, way to look at that is if someone gets um, gastroenteritis, um, that all of a sudden you get this infection that happens, but then that can turn into symptoms and that can be short-term symptoms, but that can also be longer-term symptoms. And that can change 
um, again, if we do other things to, to influence those bacteria. And those influences are actually pretty important and pretty varied. I think it goes beyond what people think it is necessarily. Maybe that's a good little segue then into one of the things that you really wanted to uh, uh, emphasize, which is how we can influence uh, these these bugs, the microbiome with the food that we eat. Do you want to talk a little bit about that or are we getting to? Yeah, yeah? Well, absolutely. That's something. And I think it, it there's a lot of things. So the way that we're born plays um, a part in this, which is really weird to think about. But when um, moms are pregnant, the bacteria in their gut actually migrate down to the vaginal area. And then when babies are born, they're going to pick that up. Or um, the first food that we're going to get is either going to be breastfeeding or formula feeding. And we see that that influences the health um, of babies, but it also influences their later life as well. Um, and it was one of the kind of mysteries in the world of um, why does breast milk contain something called a human milk oligosaccharide? Um, because oligosaccharides, this carbohydrate component, is something that we can't absorb as humans. So it kind of felt like this useless thing to have in breast milk. And then they realized it was actually feeding the bacteria, and specifically one that has been named Bifidobacteria infantis, but it's really important for baby's development. And now you'll see that in formula, um, they do try to put these oligosaccharides in there. I don't think it replicates what's happening with breast milk. There's a lot of other things that are going to be involved that are hugely important. Um, but it was one of these crazy things that um, now that we understand the bacteria, having something that we don't eat as humans becomes more important. And we also see other things, whether it's chemicals or medications or nature or exercise, all these things can massively affect our microorganism because we have to keep in mind, they're just single celled organisms. They're very easy to affect. It's not like my entire human body and all my tissues and all my organs. They're just one cell. So they're very easily influenced. But the thing that we do on a consistent basis, usually three times a day or more, depending on whether you've bought into the grazer snacker idea, is food. Uh, because bacteria have to eat stuff and then they metabolize it and they make things and then that affects how we function as humans. And food has dramatically changed over the last decades. Um, and it's something that um, has not necessarily been positively impacting our bacteria. And in turn, that's not necessarily positively impacting our health. Yeah, we've had like a pretty simplistic view of food, I think, in the past where it was like uh, the food goes in the body, then it goes <laughs> down, and then that food becomes the body and nutrients and all that. There's been this massive, massive oversight, the big mixer, where like that's why I say it, think of every food you eat as a prebiotic because yeah. you, you, you're yeah. throwing stuff in the mixer there and then God knows what's happening with those bacteria as they eat before you do, kind of. Absolutely. Well, and it's something that I always remember this, and I actually went to the University of Guelph for my undergrad as well and took me <laughs> I know, go Guelph. Um, mm -hmm. And it was something that I remember learning as early as then, but also when I was in school to become a naturopath, was the idea of 90 to 95% of your food is digested and absorbed in the small intestine. And for me, that statement was a challenge. It was, how do I get it to 100%? How do I, is it juicing? Is it giving enzymes? What can I do to break down all of the food so that my cells or the cells of my patients would get all of the nutrients that they could possibly get? And that's a massive, really kind of impressive demonstration of how little I knew about the bacteria because I didn't even think about them. To me, the large colon, and I knew there were a lot of bacteria in the large colon, but basically it was just a waste management spot. Um, and now we learn that it's a really good thing that we only absorb 90 to 95% because that leftover stuff, the stuff that we can't break down or absorb properly is the stuff that the bacteria eats. So it's a very well-designed system that a lot, especially of our plant food, we can't completely break down and then that feeds them. And then the bacteria do things that hopefully are going to be helping our health in positive ways. 
So let's get for our listeners. I'm sure they're wanting to know, okay, what am I doing? I'm buying into this idea that this microbiome is pretty important. Um, Let's get into some specific foods or food patterns um, that our listeners can kind of start right away in their kitchens and and, uh, start helping their microbiome. Absolutely. So one of the first things that I'll say is I don't think that anyone needs to be vegetarian or vegan necessarily, but having a lot of plant food is hugely important. Um, If we're looking at it from sort of an evolutionary consideration point of view, um, we know that the microbiota have genetically determined needs um, for these food residues or the things that we don't break down um, to that come from a healthy balanced diet. Um, And a lot of those things are going to come from our plant foods. So our vegetables, our fruits, our beans and legumes, our nuts and seeds, whole grains. There's a lot of these things that are coming through. And what they do is whatever doesn't get digested, absorbed in the small intestine, it's going to end up in the large colon. And that's where the bacteria are going to ferment those. Um, So if you think of beer or making sauerkraut, their fermentation happens, you imagine the gas is bubbling and um, metabolites are coming off. Um, So when they're eating a lot of plant food residues, we tend to see that the gases and metabolites that are produced um, tend to be the good ones. So we talk about the fact, especially with plant foods, that they make something called short chain fatty acids. Um, and specifically one that we talk about a lot is something called butyrate. Um, so it tends that chemical can sort of diffuse through the body. Um, and it has um, anti-inflammatory effects. Um, so it can decrease Um, those inflammatory responses that we have. Um, It can help with gut integrity. Um, So I always hate the word leaky gut, but it helps with making sure that the lining of the digestive tract is functioning properly. Um, We see that this can help with keeping transit time normal um, or lowering risk for certain types of cancer, especially around colon cancers and things like that. Um, And what we're seeing is, especially in the research, if you're looking at research papers around cancers or inflammatory conditions like inflammatory bowel disease or rheumatoid arthritis um, is that they'll talk about the fact that in individuals who have these types of conditions, they have um, lowered amounts of butyrate producing species, or they have lower levels of butyrate. So we're actually seeing changes within the patterns of bacteria and what their body is making based on Um, a lot of those things that I was talking about previously, but especially around the types of foods that we're eating that can significantly impact those um, types of things that are being produced. On the other side of it, with meats and fats, we're seeing that if people are having way too much of that and they're not having enough plant foods, um, we're not going to have as much of those plant residues hitting the gut and we're going to end up having the bacteria dealing with um, the byproducts of the meats and the the bile acids from the fats and those tend to produce more chemicals that are pro-inflammatory or pro-cancer, or we're seeing that gut-brain connection can have an issue. Um, So we're seeing sort of these negative effects that can happen more easily. So how much, in in the way of, uh, say, animal products, how much do you think we need? Like, because everyone's going to need a little bit different. um, But, you know, if you had to find, like, that zero point, because I, I, I talk about this with people, uh, you know, with protein, for example, if you have too little protein, you don't have enough growth and repair. If you have too much, then you have the toxic end products of protein metabolism. So you got to find that sweet spot. Is there any way that um, you try and work with people if they're not, you know, vegetarian by their belief systems or uh, yeah. other, how do you how do you work with that finding that sweet spot? So my general rule of thumb is the more animal food that you eat, the more vegetables you are required to eat. So if I'm looking at it like a plate, um, I want at least three quarters of it to be plant food. So if you decide to have a 12 ounce steak, go for it, but you're going to be eating bucket loads of vegetables to balance that out. Um, And that's going to be, there's going to be points in time, but I always look around the world at what 
what is being done in places where people live the longest and in the best health. Um, and what we see is that they're not inherently vegetarian or vegan cultures, um, but they're very, very plant heavy. Um, so if I think about more of a, if I'm eating at the Korean restaurant around the corner from my office that I absolutely love, um, I am going to get um, a little miso soup. I'm going to get a little salad. I'm going to get a little tiny bit of kimchi. And we'll talk more about fermented and prebiotics and probiotics and stuff like that foods. But I'm going to get little bits of those. And then I'm going to get um, my favorite bibimbap dish, which is a little bit of rice and eight different kinds of vegetables and about an ounce of beef and an egg. Um, so it's very, very focused around having a lot of plant foods, a lot of variety, a lot of color, um, and there's still protein that's there. Um, it may be if it's on a day that I'm working out, I decide to have more protein at that point. Um, but if I would say that there is any one thing that is my main focus within my diet, it is to have a wide variety of plant foods and it is especially vegetables. So that is my my daily goal is to eat as many vegetables as I possibly can. I have patients who uh, I'll say, you know, do you eat lots of fruits and vegetables? And, you know, I think, you know, in general for, for the general public, a lot is, you know, that five servings a day, um, <laughs> of, you know, they have an apple, a banana, maybe some peas for dinner. Uh, so that three quarters of a plate is, is, um, it's another shift. Yes. Yeah. And it's something that this has been an absolute work in progress for me. Um, I remember the first day that I went to school at the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine and I saw what some people were eating and I thought, okay, this is where I die um, because <laughs> my, my diet was centered around bread products and dairy products and chocolate. Um, and not even good chocolate, because I don't like dark chocolate, because it turns out I don't like chocolate. I like sugar. Um, so <laughs> variations on bread and cheese and sugar is basically what I was eating. And I didn't like vegetables at all. Um, so it has been a process to change things that I enjoy. Um, and I started out with grating a few little tiny vegetables, like literally grating them so I wouldn't have to really chew them um, into my pasta and cheese dishes that I was having to now um, this week, because we eat a lot of those bowls, like the Buddha bowls and stuff like that. We have Mexican this week. Um, so we have cauliflowered rice along with oats um, mixed together with taco seasoning that I happen to have because I make it at home because I'm a naturopath, but um, along- Hold on, hold on. You mix your cauliflower rice with oats? Yes. Oats, really? Yes, savory oats is delicious. Um, and I don't mind having straight oats or um, straight cauliflower, but oats, and again, I'm going to mention prebiotics as we go through, but oats have such a great prebiotic function to them um, that I do try to put oats into a lot of things that I do. Um, but yeah, and then there's guacamole cool. with that and a salsa with that. And we have um, a mango salsa that's going with that. And then we've sauteed up some peppers and onions and mushrooms. And then I do have some, it's a mix of ground beef and ground chicken that I have um, that's with it as well. But um, yeah, it's delicious because the flavor is delicious. Um, but it is a really, really heavy plant focus, um, which is kind of crazy. And I have to say, I've only started to tolerate cauliflower recently because it is kind of disgusting if you don't flavor it well enough, in my opinion. But um, I have, this has been kind of a 20 year process of getting to the point that vegetables are something that I not only tolerate, but I actually crave. And it makes me feel very, very happy for my own health, but also for my bacteria, because I am a Lorax for my bacteria. Um, and I want them to be happy and healthy. Mm -hmm. But on the other side of it, we're also seeing that within our food systems, we're running into problems with ultra processed foods, or the chemicals that are coming into our foods. Because in the past, we've always looked at the additives and preservatives and artificial sugars and things like that as things that 
um, they would do a study on a tissue in the body or look at sort of an overall human and say, oh, this chemical is okay because it's not affecting this organ. But now, because we've had this paradigm shift, we're starting to look at how these things within our food system are affecting the individual microorganisms. And we're seeing that we're running into problems with that. And I think one of the most interesting areas, and I should say, every time I say interesting, um, this is interesting to me. Um, I don't know that it actually means interesting to other people, but um, the artificial sugar studies are extraordinarily interesting in what we're seeing right now. Um, because if we're looking at artificial sugars, we should be seeing that our population for the amount that they're being used and, and everything that's going on, that our population is getting less overweight and obese, or we're having less issues around diabetes, because if we're taking out the sugars and we're putting in artificial sugars that can't cause us diabetes, this should be getting better. And that's not what we're actually seeing. Um, I think people know that we're having more and more issues around diabetes and weight concerns and things like that. So there's a group, um, the Wiseman Institute, that started to look at this idea of can chemicals within our food system be affecting the microorganisms and then in turn affecting what's happening to our overall health. So what they did um, was actually a series of studies, and I'll try to go through them quickly. Um, but what we saw was um, they gave mice either regular mouse chow with glucose in it, or they gave them mouse chow with artificial sugars in it. And after four weeks, what they found was the mice who got the artificial sugars had a loss of glycemic control. Um, so their blood sugar control was not very good. And this is something that's kind of unexpected because we're not absorbing those sugars. They're non-caloric. They should not be causing any changes in blood glucose control. Um, so because they thought that this might have something to do with the gut bacteria, what they then did was gave the mice antibiotics and the glycemic control got back on track. So that was sort of their start on looking at this idea. Then they looked at it from a human population side of things. And they looked at almost 400 people who did not have diabetes. And what they did was they ranked them as to who had the most um, artificial sugars in their diet and who had the least artificial sugars in their diet. And even though they were all non-diabetic, what they found was the people who didn't or who had the most artificial sugars in their diet had um, more pre-diabetes less good glucose control, um, more um, what's called central adiposity, or they had more of that apple shape where they've got the weight around their midsection um, and their weights tended to be higher as well. So that's something that, um, that doesn't prove that artificial sugars are causing that necessarily. So then they took it one step further and this was the kind of crazy step that they took. So they took a small group of people and they gave them um, the FDA's allowable amount of um, artificial sugar that they could have in one day. Um, and what they found, it was saccharin, I believe. Um, and what they found was just over half of the individuals ended up with um, profound glucose intolerance in a short period of time. Now, it's a crazy amount of artificial sugar that they gave them. The average person is not going to eat that much. But what they then did was they took all of those people and they took their gut bacteria and they transferred them into what we call germ-free mice. So mice that are bred to not have their own microbiome or bacteria. And the people who had the glucose intolerance, that was transferred to the mice. So they were able to give the mice the condition that they had. Um, so it's something that we're seeing that even though we're trying to do things to kind of trick the body in some ways to not get diabetes, our bacteria are still affected by them because they're still little organisms that we're not absorbing as humans, but the bacteria can still ferment and cause changes. Um, so it's really interesting that now we're getting all of these studies around the idea that ultra processed foods um, are really not working out for our health very well. Um, so then it becomes this issue around um, what are some of the special foods that we can do to kind of try and counteract what's happening that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, and that's, I think what most people 
think about when they say, uh, let's eat some good bacteria, they're thinking about yogurt, probably. Yes, yeah. maybe, maybe some, some kombucha or something like that. So could you talk to us a little bit about those? Yeah, absolutely. So we always talk about probiotics in general. So those are those pills or um, powders or things um, that contain our live microorganisms that if you give enough of them um, and the right ones, they're going to confer a health benefit. Um, we always talk about probiotic foods as well. They're not quite probiotics, but they're fermented foods. Um, and the fermentation process is basically where you're going to let that food sit and steep for a while. And it's going to use some of the sugars and carbohydrates. Um, and they're going to change um, the chemical structure of the food. And it usually gives us these health benefits again. Um, so probiotic foods are things like yogurt or kefir. Um, sourdough bread is another one that's going to fall into that category. They did a really interesting small study on individuals with celiac disease um, that were just diagnosed and they either gave them um, regular gluten-free bread or sourdough gluten-free bread. And they found that the individuals who got the sourdough gluten-free bread, their gut healed much more quickly than just the regular one. Um, but it's also things like miso soup, um, natto, there's a bunch of different things. You can ferment a lot of vegetables, sauerkraut, pickles. Most pickles are not um, fermented, but there are some that are out there that will actually be a true fermented ones. And then we have our prebiotic foods as well. So prebiotic foods are the ones that we can't completely digest and they're not going to be absorbed in the small intestine and that becomes the food for the bacteria. But inherently, they have to be ones that are going to promote the growth of good bacteria in our body. And then again, they're going to confer a health benefit. They have to do something that is good for us. Um, so it shouldn't be that we're getting way too much bloating and gas and negative effects that are coming from it. If that's happening, that's not a prebiotic food for you anymore. It's not conferring a health benefit. Um, but there's a lot of foods that are great prebiotics. So as I mentioned, oats is one of my favorite ones. Um, but bananas, onions, garlic, um, asparagus, our beans and lentils, they're all great ones as well. So are you straying into SIBO category uh, talk there when you're saying people get bloating? I, I had to I had to say it, Kim. SIBO. So I'm not actually. <laughs> um, so definitely with some of our basic IBS symptoms, we can see that happening. But there is a condition called SIBO or small intestinal bowel overgrowth, um, where it's not really about imbalances and good and bad bacteria as much, but there are just way too many bacteria that are living in your small intestine. Um, we see that if we go from stomach through our small intestine and down to the large colon, we get increasing amounts of bacteria. So there are massive amounts that live in the large colon and only small amounts that live in the stomach and the upper small intestine. Um, so we'll see that if some people, for many reasons, will end up with having the, way too many bacteria. And then whatever they're eating is causing gas and it can cause a lot of symptoms to happen. Um, so this can be really, really difficult for, for people who have this. Um, now, this is the warning that I give to all my patients that we have the discussion about we may, if things aren't working out, need to look at the idea of SIBO. Um, I always say, I know that you're going to go now and Google this and you are going to do a quiz and it is going to tell you 100% that you have SIBO. Um, and you probably don't. Um, so I think some of the early studies were estimating that up to 84% of people who had IBS also had SIBO. Um, when they've done meta-analyses now where they pool together lots of studies to see um, what's going on, it falls out to somewhere between 4 and 40%, which is obviously a really, really big range on things. Um, but what I find personally is that a lot of people have problems with their bacteria in general. Um, there are some people who have SIBO, um, but there's a lot of things that can be there that look like SIBO that don't necessarily mean that everyone has SIBO. Kim, what do you say to the people that they eat like what we would say, even like us naturopaths would say is like quite healthy food and then they get symptoms after eating this healthy food? What, what's sort of the thinking that you go along and, and 
uh, go through with them when they sort of feel poorly after eating good food? Yeah, and poorly in the way that I'm taking it usually means that they get a lot of bloating, often more gas than would be considered socially appropriate. Um, we can see gut sort of pains or um, distension. So we'll often hear the people who are saying, I'm trying to eat healthy food and I took out the processed stuff and I leave in one size pair of pants. And then by the end of the day, I look like I'm five or six months pregnant. And then also we're often hearing um, reflux that isn't responsive to medications or they're getting bowel irregularities. So I get some people coming in saying, I'm not going to eat in the morning because I need to be able to get to work. And I don't know if I'm gonna have to pull over to the side of the road or they won't eat around meetings because food is so complicated for them. And one of the things that we're seeing is that people are absolutely getting a mix up between their good and bad bacteria. And often when we're feeding some of these really good foods to mainly bad bacteria or more bad bacteria than we should have, we can end up with people getting resultant symptoms of gas and inflammation and sort of these negative things that are going on. So in some cases we have to do a dietary reset. We look at using very specific probiotics and prebiotics that have been studied um, very specifically for this type of scenario. But it's something that if people are eating these really healthy foods that I've been talking about and it makes you feel worse, it's often not a sign of allergies and intolerances. It's often a sign that the bacteria are fermenting those things and we're making net negative um, metabolites and gases that are, that are coming out and it makes you feel bad. And that's really an indicator that there's a huge problem that's going on. Luckily, it's something that we know so much more about now and we have great ways to actually look at that. So in times like that, do you try to add more good stuff, like maybe more good prebiotics or probiotics or take away more, you know, bad stuff? Is there like a, is there anything that makes you lean towards doing one thing or the other? Or is this where you bring exercise in? Or can you go yeah. on a little bit more about that? Because I think there's a lot of people who are probably really frustrated about eating what they think is healthy food and yeah. not getting the results that they probably deserve in a way. Yeah, it is absolutely. And that's where um, it's the worst scenario when people are coming in and saying, I'm doing it right. And yeah. they are doing it right. Um, and they still feel bad. Um, so first of all, this is absolutely something that um, seeing a healthcare provider who works in this area is really important. For me, we're usually doing a test diet where we're taking away a lot of the food from the bacteria. Um, so there's a university in Australia that has been figuring out what bacteria eat, and we tend to take that food away from people. I do it for two weeks maximum um, because the goal of um, starving the bacteria to see if you feel better is kind of like a test. Um, but at that point, all we've done is starved your bacteria. We've starved the good and we've starved the bad. That's not fixing anything. So then we start to bring back food to see how you're doing. And then we start to add back um, prebiotics that don't tend to be as aggravating for people. They have very specific um, probiotics that have been shown to be helpful for this. So lowering symptoms or actually helping with raising some of the levels of good bacteria. Um, so yeah, so that's that tends to be how I would focus. But I think a lot of the time, people will kind of self-select into that idea themselves. They'll say that cauliflower bloats me, onions bloats me, wheat bloats me, and therefore I'm gluten intolerant. And people just keep taking away more and more foods. And yeah. what they're doing makes them feel better. Um, but that's not actually health. Um, for me, having a very limited diet and starving your bacteria, whether you know that you're doing it or not, um, is actually the opposite of health to me. My goal for people is to have the widest variety of food and buy food that doesn't necessarily include hot dogs and Doritos, but having the widest variety of food possible um, and being able to socially interact with your family and work colleagues and go on holidays and not have to worry all the time. That's health. And that's that paradigm shift you're talking about, right? Because it's, it's going from thinking something externally is affecting my health, whether it's a germ or a food versus focusing on 
getting that internal health uh, so that it can handle the external world. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's like someone who um, avoids going out of their house all the time because they are irritated by every single person they run into. Yes. Right. That's not really a picture of health socially either. No, no, it's not. Um, and I know that's not what you're speaking of, but I actually had a woman in recently who hadn't gone on a walk with her family in a year and a half because she didn't know whether there wasn't a bathroom around. She couldn't do it. She had to stop coaching her daughter's soccer team um, because she couldn't be in a field where there wasn't a bathroom necessarily. Um, And it's something that it is amazing how the changes in these little tiny, tiny organisms within our body can so profoundly affect our entire lives, but they are. Um, So I think it's a great area. It's really a changing area right now um, that is exciting. It's so exciting to see what's going on. Yeah, it's it's so exciting. It's complicated too. I think um, you know, any naturopath will say it's it's pretty complicated. And and you know, as self-proclaimed uh, sort of gut gangster expert in the training, I I find it especially complicated because some people think it's not that complicated. You that, you know, like it that can be really part of me. Yeah, for the people who think that it's not complicated, they haven't looked at this enough. Yeah, um, totally. That I cannot keep up with the research that's coming out. And that's exciting, but it's also something that it's overwhelming. Um, it also offers hope, though. Um, it's something that we're just getting more and more ideas on what's happening with chronic inflammatory conditions and the gut-brain connection and um, the allergies and the autoimmune conditions and all of this is playing a part in this. So it gives us hope for moving forward. But yeah, for all the people who think they get this, um, they're wrong. Um, I certainly have, I have ideas on what is happening, but we're all admitting that um, this is such a new science. It's kind of like delving into the really deep parts of the ocean where we don't even know what questions to ask. Um, Yeah. Can we uh, just, as we try to kind of wrap up this conversation, um, I would love, I think our listeners would have some questions on probiotics, which I know you have have dove in the deep ocean on the research of probiotics. And I think probably it's an area where we don't have the answers, but I would love to see on a couple really common questions I get in my practice, uh, if we could do some rapid fire, um, you know, kind of, it's just to see how you do um, <laughs> in trying to explain where the research is. So, um, and this actually comes out of uh, both my husband actually and best friend just had uh, a round of antibiotics. And it's interesting. They both got quite anxious and had just out of the blue depression from them. Um, and, uh, and so I really saw firsthand that kind of gut brain connection. Mm-hmm. Um, but um but so so they were taking antibiotics and this is a question I get all the time. And my patients say, my doctor says not to take probiotics because they'll just be killed off by the antibiotics. So what, <laughs> what we're actually seeing is that statement is not correct. Um, so there's a lot of information on what we call strain specific probiotics. So using a very specific type of bacteria, so say L plantarum 299V to help with a certain condition. What we found with lowering the risk of complications, especially diarrhea, but just in general complications around using antibiotics, um, and this, we have a Cochrane, well, multiple Cochrane reviews on this, meta-analyses, consensus papers from the American College of Gastroenterologists, is that you should be using um, a probiotic. Generally, what we say is keep it two to three hours apart from your antibiotic, um, but it's definitely giving a benefit in lowering your risk by using it. I strongly recommend it, but this is one of the areas where we are actually seeing that almost every probiotic that has been studied has shown that benefit. Just by flooding the area with good bacteria, it seems to be able to fill up the holes of what has been killed off by the antibiotic and competitively inhibit some of the other issues that may come up from that. So really 
although I generally recommend using probiotics that have been well studied and most of the ones that you're going to find on store shelves are not necessarily going to fall into that category. But really in this scenario, just getting the good ones in there is really important. And yeah, I would do it. I would do it in a heartbeat. And yet you want to give her another one? Um, another one do you up? think that most people should take a probiotic every day? I would love it if people didn't have to take a probiotic every day. Ooh, I um, like that answer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so I think there's times when people are going to need to do that. Historically, our diet was based on having a very plant food diet. It had a lot of non-digestible carbohydrates. So we were feeding the bacteria all the time to give them what they needed to be really strong. The fiber levels, we're seeing studies um, coming out that had fiber levels that are in the hundreds of grams. So wow. That, yeah, like crazy on the Paleolithic fecal sample things going on. Um, and we had fermented foods all the time. We didn't have refrigeration. So we used fermentation as a way to have food stability and safety, but it provided us with these bacterial fermented foods. So if people are having a lot of that in their diet, um, their health is good. We are not seeing people that are the super healthy people in Okinawa, Japan or the Mediterranean that are having to take a probiotic every day. Um, but we have really shitty diets here. Um, so I was gonna it, say, can I refine my question? Yeah. Do, do people with the average Canadian diet, should they take a probiotic every day? So we haven't seen that necessarily in a study that's proving that, um, but it may be something that is beneficial. It's just, we can't say which one then. Um, and being honest, when I go to um, conferences, the supplement companies hand out. That naturopathic podcast, TNP. Hello there. Into a Tupperware container in my fridge um, and just randomly pop one when I remember. Um, it, it's just because there's none, I can't say that anyone is going to be specific for what I need because I don't have a condition that I'm taking it for. But part of me is like, well, it's a little bit of a maybe kind of, I don't know, insurance policy on my gut bacteria, even yeah. though I can't 100% say that. But it's totally random. I have no idea what they are. I'm just like, I knew originally, but now I'm like the bigger one probably has more in it. Yeah, there's like, there's not that much evidence on which probiotic to use very reliably, effectively for which person with which condition. Like, absolutely. It's, I, you know, we talked about a couple uh, just before when we were chatting about a couple that I use frequently, but I, I can't rely, like, people are coming to us for reliable things. And so I think we have to be really honest and say, look, like what basically everything that you've said is, is I say it all the time. So we're going to try something sometimes because it's probably better than nothing. We don't know exactly. You have these symptoms, which lead me to think that perhaps this one would help, you know, like we don't, we don't know, but there's a couple conditions that we, uh, I get fairly reproducible yeah. results with, but yeah. Some areas that we do have better research behind. Um, and I feel more comfortable using the probiotics that have research. And, and a lot of the time I get people coming in and saying, I've tried a, prebi or a probiotic before, therefore it's not going to work this time. But that's kind of like saying, I ate a carrot before in my life, therefore eating all the other vegetables is not going to provide me with benefit. Yeah. Um, it's not quite as simple as a probiotic. One probiotic is identical to all the other probiotics that exist. That's not remotely true. Um, because the differences in bacteria are kind of like the difference between a giraffe and an antelope. Um, they're not the same thing at all, even though we put them into one category. And then they go in a different system. Like, you know, yeah. all three of us sitting here take one, you know, equal equal amount of a probiotic it's it may have different effects on our systems and that's just the way it is we have a third of our bacteria are going to be similar um, but that means that two-thirds aren't it's kind of like our individual identity card except it's an identity card that can change mm -hmm. um i've got 
I've got one more. I don't know if you have any. Um, oh. Could you just chat quickly? Uh, we just talked to Dr. Mary Choi about weight loss, and she talked a lot about meal timing. So mm -hmm. um, how, how does the microbiome do in a culture where we're constantly snacking and eating in our cars? And, and, really uh, badly. Really, really, really badly. badly, yeah. So we talk about circadian rhythm and the fact that we've got this 24-hour cycle where we're supposed to be sleeping at some points and awake at some points and our body is supposed to be following patterns. Um, and we kind of talk about the idea of circadian rhythm with bacteria, although they're not they're not exposed to light, so they're not affected in a true circadian rhythm. Um, but the bacteria, again, they evolved with us. They are not meant to be fed all the time. And what we're actually seeing is that we tend to get better results is probably not the best word, but we tend to get better outcomes through our bacteria if we are not eating all the time. So we see that time-restricted feeding or intermittent fasting or even just eating breakfast at eight o'clock, lunch at noon, and dinner at five o'clock seems to be much better than grazing from 6 a.m. until 11 p.m. and then just having a glass of juice in the middle of the night when you get up to go to the washroom. Um, that is not seeming to work for our bacteria. It's not the way that they've evolved, and it does seem to be affecting weight. Um, and I know we just talked on this briefly about the artificial sugars and the bacteria, but the bacteria can very much affect what is happening with our blood glucose control, our cravings, and a lot of different areas around weight that are a huge, huge deal. So this whole snacking all day, grazing all day, um, doesn't seem to be working for our human cells and our circadian rhythm, but it does not seem to be working for our bacteria either. So grandma on the farm w was doing well. She was canning and fermenting her vegetables in the cellar and eating yeah. the farm breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I always think um, it would be easier if we could live in the time of Laura Ingalls. Um, it just, <laughs> for all the people who know Little House on the Prairie, which everyone yeah. is not going to know, but um, it would be if, if we didn't walk into a pharmacy and have chocolate bars up at the front. The, store that I just bought a dress at yesterday had chocolate bars at the front. We can buy and get food everywhere. It's not a luxury anymore. Um, and that just, it's not great. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, like Kim's going to have to give you a bill for all the questions that you can. <laughs> I just, I'm just giving our people the, 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 the uh, they're sitting there thinking, Oh, should I be doing this? <laughs> So there's some really, there's some great, uh, great advice in there um, from someone who's, you know, uh, a real expert. Yeah, but has, I love when I talk to people who think they know nothing. And I, I'm the same with hormones. I'm like, hormones, I know nothing. I I don't even know. I should not be taking money from this patient. I know. <laughs> um, but you have to know a lot to know that you know nothing. And uh, I do believe that is very true for, for you with the gut. I think if Kim's open to it, we should have her back. Because like this is just opening up a massive can of worms of a million like topics that we could go into more. But um, I just want to say thanks so much, Kim, for, for really... Um, teaching us and, and informing us uh, you know I can see that you I can see why you're a speaker on this uh, quite frequently because you're super knowledgeable and um, I feel like the stories make it really really easy for us to understand how these really really complicated uh, systems are working so thank you so much for for coming in and uh, teaching us a thing or two you're welcome it was super fun okay all right uh, how do how do people find you where is your practice located? So I'm in Waterloo, Ontario. Um, it's called Fundamentals of Health. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, I don't know what to say on that. That's it. You just have to go to Waterloo and I'm right there. Do you see people online or are you a real-time person? I'm generally a real-time person. We do have some, um, some consults otherwise, but a lot of the time I find that in-person tends to be the best option when possible. That is true. All right, Kim. Well, thanks so much for joining joining us. We'd love to have you back another time. Absolutely. Okay, take care. All right, take care. Thank you. That Naturopathic Podcast. TNP. Hello there.